You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. And thanks for helping us spread the word. This is a conversation I had with Ari Gerson, owner of Longfellow Books in Portland, Maine. Ari and I had a fun conversation that went all over the place, but was driven by mutual interests and curiosity. When I finally make my way to Portland, Maine someday, he'll be one of my first stops. That's all I got. Here's my conversation with Ari. So if it's okay with you, um, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, what's the Longfellow story? When did you first open and what was the vision behind opening it in the first place? Um, the Longfellow book story is, is a slightly longer, more complicated one than some bookstores. That's um, actually really good uh, podcast fodder. So the more, <laughs> the more backstory, the more uh, corners and turns you want to take, it, it's all the better. There you go. So um, Longfellow Books, as Longfellow Books opened up in 2000, Longfellow Books prior to that had been a bookstore um, called Bookland um, for, oh gosh, I don't know, sometimes since the mid 80s. Uh, Bookland was a chain of bookstores in Maine. It was independent bookstores, um, which was um, run by my father. Um, actually, my, my folks moved to Maine as hippies in the early 70s, and my dad ended up working at a bookstore and ended up running this chain of bookstores. And through, for various reasons, the chain went through a bankruptcy proceeding, and, and a number of employees at the, um, at the company bought stores out of that bankruptcy. And so my father reopened this book, ran his Longfellow Books in 2000. But, um, you know, really, my, my, my father had been a kind of main bookseller since 1976 or so. So he, he, he took over the store that was closing and turned it into Longfellow? Reopened it as Longfellow. Reopened yeah. I mean, Longfellow. I, you know, so sadly, um, about five or six years ago, he became ill. Um, I was in a position to come home. I hadn't lived in Maine in a long time. Did you grow up in Maine? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We grew up in Maine and, um, I was in a position to come back and, and I, and I came back, um, to help with some of the health issues that at the end, um, there was a decision to make about what to do with the bookstore and, um, the right decision wasn't close it. And so I was able to step in and make some life changes and, um, ensure that Portland had an independent bookstore that would, that would, you know, have continuity for years to come. Um, so I, you know, so I stepped in in about 2014, 2015, and, and, you know, just to, just to make sure that this community, which has supported an independent bookstore for, you know, throughout the, the, the two thousands, the early two thousands, when, when a lot of communities lost a bookstore, um, this one didn't, this one, this one was always stepping up and always making sure that, um, that Longfellow Books and their local bookstore was was not going anywhere. And um, so it felt like the only thing to do was to make sure that we didn't go anywhere in that situation as well. That's really great. What's the book community like in Portland? Like, are there, how many, how many bookstores are there? And um, how supportive has the community been over the years? So there's been a, a sort of, I mean, in general, uh, there's been, a large chain bookstore in in South Portland for many years. It was a it was a Borders for many years. Now it's a Books a Million. There were a couple of bookstores in addition to Bookland and then Longfellow Books um, that unfortunately closed um, between 2004 and 2007 or eight. And for a while, Longfellow Books was the only bookstore in town. 
Um, since then, there's been a couple of small little shops that have opened up. Specialty? Specialty, you know, well, yeah, I mean, you know, ones, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're, you know, they're, 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 I'll call them small local shops. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so we're, we're, we're 4,000 square feet, you know, general interest, new and used. Um, you know, we try to, we try to have what we need to have for everybody and, um, everybody kind of does their own thing, but, um, but we have a really strong community. I mean, Portland and its surrounding areas has a wealth of, of literary talent from Richard Russo to Lily King to Monica Wood to Paul Warren to, um, I mean, you know, I, I could go on and on, but we have, um, a lot of writers actually, have, you know, over time I've read and I've heard stories about them just going there to do their writing and to get away. And there's something special about the landscape and the, and the distance and the quiet that where a lot of really good work can actually happen. Can you attest to that? I think that's, I think it's true. I mean, Kay, Kay Christensen, I mean, you know, it just, it feels like every year one or two more great writers end up spending a little time and then the next year they spend a little bit more time and then a few years later suddenly we've got another local great writer and that's fantastic um because they they generate enthusiasm you know they they, they participate in events with with writers that come into town you know and it's 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 a it's really we're really fortunate in this area to have that kind of kind of uh kind of talent that's great um, how was the name determined? I'm, I'm guessing it's uh, named after Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Yep. Um, so how did your dad come up with the name? What, what was the inspiration? Um, well, he's, he's, uh, he's one of Portland's literary, you know, patriarchs, uh, born there. He was not born here, but he lived here for many, many years. Um, just down the street from us is the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow house and museum. And, um, he was, he was, he's, he's a major part of the Portland literary scene. So as a result of the name, do you guys have a disproportionately large poetry section? Is it a popular, more popular genre? I don't think so. Okay. Um, the reason I ask is because poetry is having a little bit of a moment, um, especially in the stores that we've talked to so far. Um, and are you experiencing the same wave there? Well, it's, it, it's been poetry month, right? So yeah. I think you, do you mean just this month or do you mean just in, in general? Just in general, like maybe for the year 2018, um, a lot of stores have noticed this uh, return return to poetry. One person described it as it's a really good way to get people to get more analog and to slow things down a little bit. Well, we're definitely seeing that of just in, just across the board. I mean, I don't think that's limited to poetry. I think truthfully that's that applies to picking up a a, a thing with with 400 printed pages in it yeah or you know what i mean you know it, so so we're definitely seeing that whether we're seeing a big uptick in poetry i couldn't exactly say you know it definitely uh, my my experience of poetry is that when there's when there's a real poetry event in the publishing world it sort of it spreads itself out and the tentacles start to you know and so instead of buying that book people will buy two or three other poetry books and that you know that really kind of perpetuates it yeah but i don't i don't i don't know that we've seen a huge uptick in poetry we do you know we do poetry events six to eight times a year at the store with two to four poets mostly local i mean we always turn out 30 40 50 people um so people are people have been and continue to be interested um in terms of poetry as a as a means of expression and certainly, you know, for, from a summer tourism perspective, people love to, to, to have a, a book of Longfellow's, uh, Longfellow's poetry. 
What's your background when in your nexus to book in particular? I know your dad started the the store, but uh, like, what's your what's a little bit of a bio on your nexus to books and 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 what you did before you took over? So I, um, I mean, I grew up in bookselling okay. uh, to a degree, right? right? I mean, so right, we, you know, bookstores were our playgrounds. It was literally they were. It was literally your third place. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean that's where you know that was they were they were second homes to us. Yeah. Um, you know, so we were allowed to run the aisles and make a mess, and um, which is why I let any child who's in our bookstore do the same thing. But um, so my background, um, I I was in New York for a long time. I started out in book publishing, actually, on the publishing side. I moved into um, magazine and book publishing from the business perspective a little bit. And, you know, and this was in the early 2000s. And I and I got into, um, I was relatively um, involved in digital marketing business development at that point. So I was at the New Republic magazine for many years, um, launching and um, and building out their online business. Um, and, I, and, I, and I sort of spent a lot of years in the online publishing and marketing marketing space. So that's, that's, that's kind of professionally. My background, um, is in the online publishing and marketing. Um, but I did, I did technically start out in the, the brick and mortar publishing book selling world. Yeah. Well, it actually sounds like, um, you are an outlier in that you kind of have been, you have a technology background. What are, what are some of the ways you guys are, are leveraging technology to grow and scale the store? That's a really good question. For the most part, to date, it has been internal, and I, by that I mean upgrading, like really, really working on our systems. Um, Process. Yeah, one of the challenges of the of the retail bookselling industry is that there's there's not a lot of there's not enough volume for twenty different players to be in the point of sale space to to be building out great systems that are competitive and intriguing, and um, it you know. There's not enough volume for Square or something like that, and so so what you end up with is you end up with a couple of players like Barnes and Noble or Borders or folks like that who have, you know who ended up building their own systems, and then you have a few other systems, and and we've we've worked very hard from a technology from a technology perspective to to really try to make sure we're taking advantage of of everything that's out there. Um, other than that, um, you know, social media is big for us. Are you guys into broadcasting your events online, or is that something that you're thinking about? It is something that we're thinking about. It is not something that we do, and I and I don't have a I don't have a good answer as to why we have or have not. Um, other than just it's on a list, and and sometimes things go higher priority. I think it's worthwhile. I think that I think that the challenge in that. The challenge in something like that is that when authors are on tour, the value or the or the experience is being in a room with them and hearing them and asking questions of them and having a book signed by them. There's probably, you know, except from the local authors who who, who we have events for that don't go on tour, anybody who comes into the store is probably being streamed somewhere else for basically a similar event. So it's kind of like, you know, if you ask, would you ask a band, like, are you guys going to stream every show you do? They wouldn't because there'd be no point in people going. Um, sure. And so, and I think, and I think bookstores in general have shied away a little bit from that. There's a lot of unique programming that a lot of stores are doing, like politics and prose in DC does phenomenal unique programming yeah. and they have access to such great you know, I mean, God, the folks that they bring in down there are just beyond belief. And 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 we're we're trying to move into that space. Um, 
we just um, we we actually had a great event this past Saturday for Independent Bookstore Day, um, where we had two phenomenal local children's uh, book authors and illustrators, uh, Chris Van Dusen and Scott Nash. So Scott Nash illustrated um, Fast Stanley, among other things, and Chris Van Dusen um, does the the Mr. Magoo series and 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 so much more. Um, and he illustrates Dick Camillo's books. Um, so anyway, the two of them did a draw off and they, and they basically just spent an hour oh, that's taking cool. suggestions from kids and, and doing, doing drawings. That's the kind of stuff that we should be, we should be broadcasting because that's the kind of stuff that, that nobody else gets to see elsewhere in the country. But the, but the straight author events, I don't know. I guess I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, you're, and they're and they're they're well considered. I mean, the, the you're absolutely right. Having having redundant cookie cutter content is not necessarily going to move the needle for you in any capacity. And it's sort of just spreading that individual or that talent thin. But I really like your idea of having unique programming and coming up with sort of kind of these niche things that you can kind of tailor your. I don't want to use the word brand too loosely, but just sort of like build a build a brand around that. Draw off sounds like a perfectly social streamable sharing idea and that's it must have been a hit with the kids it's yeah it's fantastic those two are sort of local heroes to the kids and we do we do a lot of events with them throughout the year it's it, they're, they're just the perfect the perfect guests for for a day like independent bookstore day so you are um, second generation bookseller. Let me just call it that. You 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 grew up in the business, and and now you have the chance to kind of like usher in this, uh, I guess, new thought. Um, are you are you approaching things any differently? Do you do you think about the industry differently? Um, are there anything? Is there anything in the store that you're doing maybe a little bit differently than than the next independent store? Just curious about your mindset. Well, I can't speak for that. What we're doing differently from the next independent store. You know, I think I, I think everybody's trying to be innovative in their own ways. My perspective tends to be that we have a little microcosm and it's our job to take care of that microcosm. And there are industry trends that we need to make sure that we're aware of. We shouldn't have more, you know, there's a there's a stock to sales ratio. There's, you know, there's all kinds of industry standards that one should be aware of. Um Truthfully, I think that there's a, a, a benefit in it and a, and a negative to my coming in without knowing any of that stuff, because all I've, all I've been concerned with is how do we make the store the most comfortable experience, the most welcoming space and, and an unforgettable pillar of the community? You know, how do we do that in the ways that we can do it um, as best we can? Um, and so we we have made a lot of physical changes to the store in terms of layout in terms of layout we took down a lot of cases and replaced them with tables so the space was more open we took down we removed some stuff around so we could bring in more couches and, and have some seating areas we put a lot more stuff on wheels so that we could be a little bit more modular a little bit more proactive yeah. and modular and you know and and then just and then take advantage of it so um, you know, we started a program about a year ago. I, I think a lot of cities have this, like a like a, a first, like an art walk, like a, a first Friday or a first Saturday or a whatever. You know, there's a day of the month where there's you know sort of an art walk, and so so in Portland, it's first Friday of every month, and the galleries stay open, and a lot of shops have displays of of local artists, and and so we started staying open about a year ago, um, and we we turned the entire store into community space. 
we started putting out postcards. We started putting out postage. We started putting out um, addresses and contact information for, um, for you know political representatives. And and then in a little bit, it got a little bit more focused, and we started to actually have some speakers. And it's not left or right. It's not liberal conservative. It just was more about there's a dialogue that's not happening in our community that needs to happen. And if there's no space for it, then it won't happen. And and we felt like we had a space, and we are in the middle of town. And we needed to provide it. And um, so those are the kinds of things that, that, that feel important to me, um, that we that we sort of uphold our end of the bargain on. You know, I think the community upholds its bargain, uh, its end of the bargain in terms of buying books, bringing their kids in, coming in for events, you know, things like that. Our end of the bargain is more than just making sure we have the books. Our end of the bargain is is using the space we have and the role we have in the community for for sort of a net good um, for everybody. And, and, and I think we're, you know, I, I, I think those are the things that, that everybody, myself included, are really proud of that we're doing. Well said. You're a generalist bookstore, you said at the beginning, but um, I'm curious about your curation process. How do you, how do you guys approach curation there? Uh, well, we have a, we have a book buyer um, and then we have, so we carry um, new books. We also do carry used books, though it's probably not more than, 15% of our stock. We carry sidelines, we carry magazines, we carry newspapers, which is, you know, that's, that's becoming a rarer and rarer experience. So we have a book buyer, but, um, you know, my, what I try to do is encourage, you know, a team approach to everything. So everybody knows that they can suggest books that we don't have, that we ought to have. Everybody knows that they can, um, everybody from myself to, to, to the most recent hire is writing, um, recommends. The, what are they called? The um, the shelf talkers? Yeah, well, not even just shelf talkers, but I mean, she recommends. I mean, you know, 250 words that we send out in our weekly email. I mean, everybody, everybody is a part of that process. You know, the the, the you know the the whole thing exists because of the individual units working together. So so everybody is involved in all of those pieces. So the curation is, and truthfully, we've got a pretty vocal customer base, and if they, that must really help. Think, well, some days. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, but it, you know, in, in seriousness, yeah. If there's books that we don't have that that they think we should have, they'll tell us, and we'll get them. Absolutely. Well, the customer's always right. Well, there's two hundred and fifty thousand books published every year. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to catch everyone, and especially when you have limited selling space too. I mean, on top of that, you have to. There's all these variables you have to try to optimize for. Sure, sure. But you know, I've got a great buyer. You know, and, and even on the publishing side, I mean, the sales reps, the sales reps in the publishing industry are, are I think, pretty unique. It, they, they deserve a different title. In a good way or a bad way? No, in a good way. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're not pushing product so much as they're trying to, they're trying to get the right books for your Market. readers Interesting. into the bookstore. It's really, it's a really, it, you know, I, I just, I feel like sales rep is, is underselling what, what what publisher sales reps do because they're a big part of what we carry and, and they do a really good job of, of coming in at, to the store and understanding what our customers like and, 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 and trying to make recommendations that fit. Um, and they're, they're really good about that. So I, I'll, I'm on a, I'll kick a little credit over to that as well. That's interesting. You're the first person that said that. So that's cool. It's a nice, uh, nice nuanced uh, take there. So a lot of, uh, Independent bookstores in general, there was this one narrative that, you know, they were in trouble and, and you know, Amazon 
everybody was, you know, crying foul. Um, but th- th- they, you guys have actually been bucking the trend lately. And um, even some, some independent stores have actually become mini chains, if you will. You know, they've opened one or two or three extra additional locations. Um, is expansion something that you guys are thinking about? Not today. What do you say to somebody who, on the other end of the spectrum, who's not necessarily in the business and thinking about expanding, but um, is thinking about opening one today, opening a new store? Um, they don't have the the built-in goodwill, if you will, but they have an idea. They have a they have a, a passion. Um, they found the location. Uh, what do you say to someone who wants to open a bookstore today, and how how can they make it work? In your opinion, a couple of nuggets of information. I don't. I mean. I, I wish I had those nuggets of information. I, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's unique to book selling. I think that if you have either an underserved market or a unique value to add, you know, I think one of the challenges about book selling is that we all sell the same products at the same prices. Yeah. Right. So we, I mean, you don't have to, you can discount, but you can't, you can't mark up. You know, those those prices are printed on books and it's not as though you can corner the market on Stephen King or something, you know, like everybody's got like you you can't. So to me, in the in the book industry, it comes down to ensuring that there's a large enough customer base to generate needed revenue to cover overhead. And that's piece one. Um, And then piece two is, is there some unique value proposition maybe your poetry store maybe your mystery bookstore maybe you're used maybe you're not I, I or maybe there's nothing in the market and and there's 150,000 people who have been shopping on Amazon uh, but they don't want to you know what I mean that's you know there's but beyond that I, I don't know you know book selling's about it's a it's the same it, it's the same as any other success you know any any retail organization that's successful I think is successful because they connect with their customers. That's not that's not retail. That's anything. That's online. That's that's digital. That's whatever. If you don't connect with your customers, eventually your business drops. So there has to be a customer base to connect to, um, and there has to be a reason to connect with them. I think. No, you're absolutely right. I'm saying that as I'm saying that you know not as a bookseller necessarily, just just from my experience in in life. Yeah, a lot of the ones that are opening. Um... I talked to, I think it was uh, Green Apple Books in San Francisco. Um, somebody came to pick their brain about how to open a store, and they had a concept where they were they were doing like a like a like a, a, a remix, if you will, of a bookstore. It, but everything goes from like we sell books, and then we do this as well. Um, we provide this experience. We provide this extra service where book selling becomes kind of an ancillary experience part of the whole mix and there are a bunch of concepts across the country that are opening up where books are a part like specialty cookbook stores for example where they match it up with cooking classes and uh, cooking demonstration kitchen demonstrations that's one thing that we've seen but what you said is absolutely true like can your market support it and that is that is the that is the balance there has to be an equilibrium i don't know that there can be too many bookstores i would love personally i would love to see one on every block but there has to be a balance for sure there could definitely be too many bookstores i yeah. mean there could be yeah. too many anything yeah. i mean you know that's you know that is the that is the truth um the people uh, i didn't mean to cut you off um the people that are coming to uh you guys 
your your local customers and the tourists is Amazon a threat like to your everyday existence at this point or are you are you pretty much like I guess boxed in from uh, from that type of a buyer like the person that's going to buy it online and wouldn't even give a second thought to local independent uh, retailers and stores have you guys found a have you guys found a balance or is there a constant uh, I guess the word is showrooming is that a big part is that a big issue that you guys are still dealing with I don't spend any time thinking about Amazon other than if they decided to open up a store in Portland. And truthfully, even then, Portland, Maine is like... Fiercely independent. It's very, very independent. Yeah. Um, it, 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 we do have a couple of chains in downtown Portland, but it is it, that's a recent development. Um, I mean, not like Amazon needs the money, but like from a business perspective, it would be silly to open an Amazon store in downtown Portland. I just think it would be poorly received, but the, but I don't, I don't have any concerns about Amazon from a book selling perspective. If somebody wants to get a book discounted, then they're not going to get it at our store. Right. Um, that's not why people shop with us. And we, for the most part, if we don't have a book, we can get it within a couple of days. There are certain books, you know, that are take a little longer to get. And if somebody needs it right away, we'll usually, you know, do whatever we can to get it. Um, but usually if we can't get in a couple of days, then Amazon can either. And, and so, you know, so generally speaking on the delivery front, unless somebody doesn't want to leave their house, then we can compete on that. Um, if somebody wants to come into the store and pick their book up, we can get it pretty much as quickly as Amazon and get it to their, to their doorstep. Um, we just don't discount. And I don't think that most people want there are customers. They don't want their books discounted. They want to support writers. They want they want there to be a revenue stream for ideas and expression and thought. And yeah. and and I think they know that that doesn't happen if you hand it all over to one giant behemoth. Um, I think that the I think that the ebook revolution, for lack of a better word, with the Kindle was game changing. I think, I think it put a huge percentage of bookstores out of business because Amazon was selling eBooks at 99 cents. No longer the case though, right? The the prices have, yeah, exactly. But, but now that that is no longer the case, now that they are no longer able to do that, now that an eBook might cost $6 and a paperback might cost 11 and a paperback might cost 20 or something. There's sort of a, there's a, there's a value proposition that makes sense. Yeah. So I think the pendulum swung really far while everybody was trying out ebooks and Kindles. And then once that 99 cent went away, it was like, uh, a lot of people were like, you know what? I feel like I'd rather just spend $10 and have the book. So true. And, and that's, that has been, in my opinion, that has been the single biggest impact on the resurgence of independent bookstores. I really do. I think if I think if I think if Amazon was still selling ninety nine cent ebooks on the Kindle, then we would be out of business. I think plenty of other bookstores would be out of business, and nobody would be opening. I feel like if that were actually the case, if that was like that, there was like a parallel universe where that was happening. I feel like there would be a huge disincentive to even write books in the first place, too. I feel like you would lose a lot of authors. Does that? Is there any? Is, is there any truth to that? Like, if everything is ninety nine cents, then it's. Uh, like, how does that support anybody? I mean, I guess 
I guess if I took a music model, what I would say is that publishers hopefully would adapt and they would start selling chapters instead of books. Yeah. Well, the way uh, music, music, music is an interesting animal um, because there's this live the, 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 touring is a, is a component and authors don't really have a, I mean, how many, I guess speaker fees, but it's, uh, it's not as big of an audience. It's not as big of a draw yeah. necessarily. But it's interesting. What you said is actually really interesting. This notion that uh, that the, in in your opinion, the the pricing model of eBooks is kind of the crux of what's allowed independent stores to kind of make it in this new world. Well, look, I mean, you you can criticize the music industry from left to right, but like, I don't think it. I mean, there was music being being you know basically stolen yeah. and shared for free, but at no point was anybody allowed to sell an album. For ninety nine cents. Yeah, until until iTunes, until the song. Well, no. Yeah. Then it became a. You could sell a song. Right, right. But for some reason, the publishing industry let Amazon sell entire books for ninety nine cents. Yeah. For years, I mean, and that's you know, I that's that's the that's the it's a, it's a, and it did it hurt a lot of authors. Of course, it hurt authors. It took a lot of money out of the pockets of publishers to pay authors, and it and it overall just lowered the value of content. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's any kind of content. We know that, right? I mean, that's, that's magazine content, newspaper content. Unfortunately, it's, you know, the value gets low, has gotten lower, but. You know, it, it, it actually ties into one the next question I was going to ask you about whether there's an innovation or thing in this business that nobody's doing right now. And um, uniformly, most people don't really have an answer right off the bat. They, you know, they'd say, well, if, if there was an innovation, I'd already be doing it. But um, there's one cohort of booksellers and consumers, I'm, I'm speaking from the consumer side, that has always been interested in this model of when you buy a, a one price that gets you access to the the print and the the ebook format and the audiobook format so kind of a a, a triple play if you will um, mm-hmm. and that kind of goes ties into this whole idea of you saying why don't you sell books by the chapter and those are th- these are two really unique innovations that I that c- well, wait I didn't I didn't say that I'm not suggesting that anybody sell books by a chapter I'm simply saying I was simply saying if Amazon was continuing to sell books at 99 cents, the only thing I could see to do against that would be to say, uh, we're going to sell you chapters, not books, Amazon. Gotcha. So you can sell a chapter. That, that's all I meant. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to, to recommend serializing uh, books. That might be an interesting idea. I don't know, but I wasn't saying that. Um, speaking of ebook or uh, audio books, do you guys, are you partnered with Libro FM? We are. Okay. And how is that? Is that a, is, has that, has that been a, a net negative, a net positive or a net neutral for you? I think it's probably a net neutral. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's a net positive because it doesn't take, you know, we don't spend, we don't spend time on it. And, and, you know, we do, there, we do have a place to at least tell people where they can get audio books in a way that, you know, moderately benefits, you know, their local bookstore. So I, so in that sense, it's a net positive. Um, but it's not something that we focus much attention on. Truthfully, we don't really get a lot of requests for audiobooks. Um, and I don't know if that's just because everybody has decided they're going to download what they're downloading from elsewhere. Um, but we, we haven't put a lot of energy into it, but we don't, we don't get a lot of requests for it either. You think it might have to do with like the, the, just the demographic, like they're not being a large, like not being a very big car culture there, kind of things being a little closer together. You think that might play into that any? It may be. Yeah. 
because in LA where, where, I, where I am, it's, it's a huge part of the, the, the content uh, consumption, if you will, because people spend a, lo- a disproportionate amount of their time in their cars. And so they're listening, they're looking for new and interesting uh, things to listen to. And audiobooks are one of the pillars of that. But I guess it's, again, it could be a very regional, regional thing. I think that's probably partially true. I also think there's just a ton of um, competing attention in the audio space. I mean, there's so many podcasts. There's so many. Yeah, well, we're we're doing one. I mean, you know what I mean. There's there's so much more audio content than there used to be. Besides the radio or the CDs you have in your car. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot more. There are a lot more ways to fill your time driving. Um, having said that. Yes. If somebody drives for six minutes in Maine, they think they're in traffic. <laughs> so, so it is, it is definitely different than LA. I can guarantee you that. Um, I want to finish up with a lightning round. I'm going to ask you a handful of questions. They can be yes or no answers. Um, but if you want to riff on them, feel free. What does the book business look like to you in five years? Um, I'm excited about it. Uh, because I don't know where it's going. Uh, truthfully, I, I really don't know. Mostly, I say this on a personal level for our store. I don't know. We, we I don't know what we're going to look like in five years, and I'm excited about that. But I think even just book publishing in general, book book selling in general, technology comes fast. Publishing comes fast. There's an extraordinary amount of talent out there. Um, I'm excited about it. Do you think that print's always going to exist? Has it has it weathered the storm sufficiently? Yes. Do you want, do you want me to expand on that or do you want me just to just do a yes? No, no. If you, if you, if you want to, I, I feel free, but the, 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 uh, the general consensus is that, that, that it's a, that it's a yes. And I'm glad to hear that. I um, actually, you know what I will, I will, I'll, I'll couch that in a statement. I think if you ask me that question it, in 30 or 40 years, I don't know if that's true in 10 or 20 years. I think it is true. I think that there are, there are generations that are increasingly being raised on content that is not on paper. And there, and I, and I, I I actually really do think there's a physiological rewiring of the brain. So like for me, when I read an ebook, I can't recall sections of the book because I, when I think about a part of a book, I actually visually see it. I physically, like I see the physical part in the book where it was kind of halfway through or three quarters through or whatever. Um, so when I read an ebook, I enjoy it, but I don't remember it. I don't think that generations below me will have that issue. And I, I think that there is a chance that, that within two generations, print may be gone other than for some specialty kind of experience. I don't know. Interesting. You know, uh, it's funny. I, um, was listening to another podcast unrelated to this and, uh, and book selling in general. Um, it was a, a, some influential person and he was talking, he was asked about some books that he's read recently that he recommends. And he said, you know, he's like, I read a lot. Um, but I read them on my Kindle and sadly, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but I, I don't remember the title. Um, I, I don't even, I don't even remember the author's name. Um, but I remember, the, I remember the stuff that I read inside it. And what he was, the point he was making was that with the, with the ebook experience, you just, you don't even see, you see the title for maybe a 10th of a second and then you're automatically into the preface or whatever. And that really kind of like hit me. And it's actually, there's actually a truth 
truth to that. Unless you're holding a physical object that's not some commoditized, digitized thing, you there's a pretty strong possibility you're not going to remember what you're reading or who you're reading. Um, and well, not, not only that, but, you know, if you're... So, I don't know. Let's say that you are reading a book. I'm gonna actually, I'm going to put in a plug. Country Dark is one of my favorite new releases. Ah, you took one um, of my, you took one of my questions. Okay. Anyway. Damn. Yeah. Well, sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, but let's, so let's say, let's say you're reading, you know, Country Dark for, for four or five days, right? It's sitting on your nightstand or it's sitting on your desk or it's sitting wherever. And every time you go to, every time you go to start it or every time you put it down, you're looking at the cover. If you pick up your Kindle each time and you say, and you, and you turn it on, it's just going to go to the last page you were at. Right. So instead of seeing that 20 times, you see it once and you see it in grayscale and it's bad and you basically never see it. And, and I mean, you'd, you'd have to like make note cards for yourself to remember what you're reading truthfully. Yeah. Um, a lot of truth to that. Um, and, I, and I think that's just the challenge. And I just, you know, but again, I honestly believe that generations uh, that, that younger generations are, are learning to digest information in different ways and I don't think that that I think it's not going to matter to them the way same way it matters to me. Um, you might have already answered this, but what are you reading at the moment? Oh, uh, what am I reading at the moment? I just well, uh, nothing. Isn't that interesting? Um, I, I just came back from a a, a, a weekend trip and I finished um, Paul Dworan's new book. Uh, he's a local mystery writer, um, and I also just finished Meg uh, Riley's new book. Uh, she's going to be coming for an event in a couple of months. So that's what I have just finished. And I don't think I've actually decided what I'm opening up next. Um, How do you decide? How does stuff come to you? Um, you know, up from everywhere. Um, uh, it, you know, we, we get galleys in all the time. We get new releases in all the time. Everything looks great. Um, how do you decide what to read? I don't know. I... I bring home eight books and I, I probably am lucky if I read two of them and my wife reads two of them. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. But I try to make a habit of um, reading all of our local authors when they publish a new book. I, tr I try to make a habit of uh, reading any author that we're doing an event with. And then I, you know, so that probably accounts for 40 books a year. Um, and then I try to space in, some other things that I that I also want to read. Um, I, I I enjoy nonfiction. Um, I enjoy historical fiction. I'm actually a sucker for Ken Follett. Like that's I, like I started reading Pillars of the Earth when I was a little kid, and I what, whether 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 one of his books is well written or not, I I'm just I can't I can't not read it. So it's it's just the way it is. And I think everybody's like that with something. You know, you just you have that book or that series, that author that you just you're just going to love it, you know, and, and you're just going to enjoy being in that world. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, I, I don't know. What do they say? Don't, don't ever take a job in something you love. It's, <laughs> it's a challenge, you yeah. know, because, because you, you, you end up having to miss, you, you end up having to know all the great books you can't read. Um, that's the, that's the downside of, of book selling is that, is that day in and day out, you're reminded of how many amazing books there are that you're probably not going to have time to, uh, incorporate into your life. Another corollary is that, you know, the more, the more knowledge you acquire over time, the more things you learn over time, the more you realize how little you actually know. <laughs> That's also true. Um, so if you weren't a bookseller, what would you be doing? <sighs> That's a far more complicated question than, 
than uh, than just bookseller. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't know is the answer. Um, I there were a lot of there were a lot of transitional things happening in my life at the time when I um, when I came home and to take to to help take care of my dad and I I, I would probably be. I'd probably be doing um, some sort of entrepreneurial, you know, digital marketing, digital publishing work in some fashion, uh, but which I do. I mean, I, I, I still do. I still do some of that, um, well, you know, just to, just to keep my, keep your toes in. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I enjoy it, you know, and I, and, um, but that's a, that's a very complicated question. We could turn the recorder off and I can give you the full answer to that. But. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, cu- couple more. Uh, complete the sentence. Portland, Maine is? Portland, Maine is the place that you have a 15% likelihood of moving to in the next 15 years. A 50%? 15. 15%. Is there, uh, is there, how'd you come up with that number? 50 seems too high. 15 seems too low. Um, you know, so... We've been wanting to visit there for a long time, so it's 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 true. There's a there's a I've never been, and uh, I'm from California, and I, I, Acadia. I have this for some reason. I have my there's this like vision in my head of what Acadia is, and I want to go there with my kid before he's too old. So there's a little bit of truth to what you said. I really, I mean, I you know, look. So I grew up in Maine, and then I spent most of my adult life in New York, and then I came back to Maine, and all I've been seeing are people moving from New York, Boston. Uh, California, not not so much California actually, but um, the 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 temperatures here are getting a bit warmer. That's not a good thing for the planet, but right. it, it is the reality. Yeah. Um, the restaurants are getting better. The the entertainment is getting better. The property values, compared to um, you know the places these folks are moving from, are not even a joke. I mean, it's a joke. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a 10th of what you pay and the transportation has become such that, um, and I do this every couple of months. I mean, I fly to New York for various reasons. Um, I'm in, I'm in Tribeca in three hours, door to door. People are moving to New York and commuting to New York. Sorry, moving to Portland and commuting to New York. Um, they're moving their families here because the schools are good. Property values are low. Um, the quality of life is good. And they're keeping their business or their jobs in New York and they're going, they're spending three days a week there and five days a week here and, or two, five, four days a week here. And it's like, it's happening more and more and more programmers. We have, I mean, we've had three different independent workspaces for, you know, entrepreneurs and programmers open up in downtown Portland in the past two years. Like co-working spaces? Exactly. Well, you're speaking, that speaks volumes. You've actually lived in the city and you've worked there and you spent a lot of time there and you're, and you're saying really amazing things about Portland. That's, that's, uh, you, you know what the nightlife is like in the city and, and, uh, all that the city has to offer. And we can't do that. If you want night that we can't, we can't do it. Nobody does New York nightlife. Right, right. No. So let me, let me, let me scratch that. Not the nightlife, but the, just in terms of like community, because people want, uh, one of the, my, one of my favorite things about the city, um, when I lived there was just the walkability, the fact that you could like in your neighborhood, you lived in, I lived in a certain block area and I would just go to things in that block area. If you can take that and you can put that in other cities and communities, then you get that experience. And the place that we live in, in Los Angeles, the neighborhood we live in is very Brooklyn-y. Um, and it's, and it's by design. Um, the fact that it's been able to be exported to Portland too, is a great thing. That's, that's awesome to see. Um, where in LA are you guys? 
Uh, it, the neighborhood's called Silver Lake. Um, so it's, oh yeah, I, I know that area. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very well documented in the press. You know, it's like it's, it's a very buzzworthy name, but um, mm-hmm. it's a walkable neighborhood. You can go. You don't need your car. Um, a lot of things for kids. Um, you know, it's got the local bookstore. It's got just just the whole vibe of of like a city, a, a couple of city blocks, and then everything you everything you need within a couple of city blocks. Yeah. The difference is, and, and this is the one thing that Portland is going to have to figure out or Maine is going to have to figure out. The difference is that it's nice to have that. Uh, it's comfortable to have that when you know that all you have to do is either uh, get on a subway or, or drive, you know, 10 minutes and you can have a whole other world available to you. Yeah. yeah. The challenge of Portland is that you have to kind of be content with not just the block, right? It's bigger than that, but right, right. but you 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 have to be content with your six or eight blocks, and then you have to want to have your outdoor stuff and your just skiing or your or your sailing or your swimming or your you know whatever. But but you don't you don't have what you can't do is jump on a subway and go into an, and you can't get out and go up and be in Chinatown or in Tribeca or in, you know, Gramercy or wherever it is. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what you can't do. And, and, and I mean, you and I, so if you lived in New York, you know, you spend 90% of your time in your block and that's great. But the comfort is knowing that anytime you want, you You can can shoot shoot out, you can go anywhere. And that's, and so, and, and that's the transition that Portland's going through right now, which is an interesting one to watch. Um, um, I totally get it. This idea of also having a second place where you can escape to, get off the grid, recharge, and then go back. I think that is a big generational thing. Um, I'm seeing it across the board. Um, it doesn't matter what city you live in. It's you, you, you want to get off the grid for a few days and have a place that you can go to, that you can default to. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you two more questions before I let you go you to Absolutely. round out? Okay. Um, what book have you recommended the most over the years to people? Over the years? Yeah. Um, Wrinkle in Time as a kid's book. And what have I recommended the most? That's an interesting question. Or, or gifted. A lot of people gift books. I, I, like I, I, I have a, I have a couple of go-to books. Like the, the book that I was into most recently was called Sapiens. And then the guy who wrote that actually did a follow-up book uh, to that. And I, I gifted it because it just was like a really great summary of the world. Um, so that's kind of the essence of the question. Like, yeah, what? I mean, I, 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 I definitely put a lot of copies of Dark Money in people's hands over the last couple of years. Cause I felt like it was important. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's, that, that's, I, I put that in a lot of people's hands because it felt like an important thing for people to read. Sure. Um, I don't know. That's such a hard question. I mean, I, I give, I, I put so many books in people's hands. It's, it's, um, it's really hard to say. Um, and you know, the, I mean, and this is the value of a bookstore, right? Like, yeah. Hand selling. Like you, you have to, you have to, you have to want to be able to give somebody Clive Kessler or Dostoevsky, or Richard Russo, or, you know, like, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, you've got everybody, and everybody leaving with a book is a good thing. Isn't Empire Falls based in Maine? uh, Empire Falls is upstate New York. Upstate New York, okay. Yeah. Uh, So Richard Russo is not a Maine writer? uh, Well, he'd probably uh, say he, I mean, he would, he would, 
I, I think he would define himself as a main writer now. He grew up in upstate New York. Um, he went to school in Arizona and he moved to Maine um, and taught at Colby College for many years. And he's been in Maine for a long time. I, I think, you know, Mainers are very, very reluctant to to welcome people into their circle. But I, I, Rick's Rick's a Maine writer. He's uh, in the club at this point. He's definitely Rick is definitely in the club. Um, I mean, I think I think Rick's been in Maine for, um, you know, for 30 years or something. So 40 years even. So he's he's a Maine writer. Last but not least, and take a minute to think about it, and it's a very important question, and it's going to actually be scored. So your voice is going to be scored with music when this episode comes out, uh, and this question is answered. Um, what's in your ideal sandwich? I'm only going to answer that if John Williams is going to do the score. <laughs> I w- if, I could, if I could afford his licensing fee, I would put it in. <laughs> it's, sadly, it's sadly going to be something that is within the budget of uh, the Book Stories podcast. Um, <laughs> My ideal sandwich. Oh, uh, see, the problem is you're talking to a sandwich maker. Like, oh wow! So then, perfect. So just let it let it rip. Um, my ideal sandwich: uh, aged provolone, uh, thin sliced salami, thin sliced beefsteak tomato, light smear of Dijon mustard. On one roll, once a little, a few drops of olive oil and balsamic on the bottom. And something's got to go in there for crunch. I feel like I want to say romaine, but I, I'm a little bit nervous because everything has E. coli now. <laughs> awesome. If it, was, if it was E. coli free, I would say I would say a little a little romaine in there. That that would be that's for me. Perfect. You you answered that. You're the so far you're the undisputed champion of answering that question. Thank you. Um, Ari, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I wish you well up there in Portland and uh, hopefully when we make it out there we'll uh, come by and say hi. All right, man. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. You too. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.